0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind
1: from HowStuffWorks.com Thy character must have the names of the five angels written in the midst of Segellum Ameth graven upon the other side in a circle in the midst whereof must the stone be which was also brought wherein... Thou shalt at times behold privately to thyself The state of God's people through the whole earth Go, and thou shalt receive Tarry, and you shall receive Sleep, and you shall see But watch, and your eyes shall be fully opened One thing which is the ground and element of thy desire Is already profited And out of seven, thou hast been instructed of the lesser part most perfectly. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And from the beginning there, you may think that we were, I don't know, performing a ritual of some kind and trying to summon an angel, and you would be half right. <laughs> That's right. That is, a, that is a quote from the writings
0: of uh, the the legendary, the mysterious, the influential Dr. John Dee, the topic of both episodes this week. Uh, and he is a fascinating character, an Elizabethan... Mathematician, uh, conjurer, possibly a spy, <laughs> yeah, uh, cryptographer. Uh, the, the list goes on. First and foremost, a, a, a mathematician, but it gets it gets a lot more complicated than that as you try and piece together this man,
1: the world he lived in, and what he really believed in. D is, is one of those characters that we we've been talking about doing an episode on him for a while now. And when we dove into the research, we we really realized, okay, this needs to be two episodes. And the way that we've decided to split these episodes categorically is this first episode is going to be more grounded in the sexy, occult, magical stuff. And the second episode is going to be grounded in his scientific endeavors and his statecraft. Um, there's so much about him that I learned doing this. And there's so many different interpretations, yeah. too. He's just this fascinating individual. Um, If you're unfamiliar with him, I guess the best way to describe him is that he was one of the leading intellectuals of his time. It may not sound like it, given some of the things we're going to say in these episodes, but he had magical interests. But despite that, he brought developments to England in cartography, navigation, mathematics, astronomy and cryptography. And his reputation in alchemy and astrology totally influenced the court of Queen Elizabeth I. He was no doubt influential in that respect.
0: Yeah, he, he, he had a rapport with, uh, with Queen Elizabeth. Uh, some historians go as far as to say that they were friends. Right. And, uh, you do get the idea that there may have been as much of a friendship as was possible between the Queen of England and, uh, you know, a, a,
1: essentially a common born right. intellectual who dabbled in magic. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, we'll say this later, but he did think of himself as her Merlin which is really fascinating and comes into play. So the I I said that we're going to split these episodes up, but one thing that you have to keep in mind is that the magic and the science <laughs> overlap a lot, too. Yes. Um and so even in things like when he's advising them on national matters on expanding the English empire, he's still thinking in magical terms like he's Merlin and she's King Arthur. Right, he's he's a guy who, like I say, it's it's essential to
0: keep the mathematics in yeah. in, in in mind. But it's not like he's a guy who, all right, I'm going to do my job here, which is science or mathematics, and then in my free time I'm going to do a little sorcery, right. and then and, and then also I have this advising gig uh, with the queen. He saw it all connected. He saw it as part of a, a, a single
1: tapestry of cosmos. And so there's a note I just want to provide here before we really dive in deep, which is uh, I was reading an article in History Today that came out earlier this year by a woman named Katie Burkwood. And she says, keep in mind that the main sources for the story of Dee's life are all his own. <laughs> um, so mainly what we're looking at. What We didn't look at this. We looked at people's interpretation of those primary sources. Mm-hmm. Well, but, we dabbled in well, some yeah, of the primary we did. sources. That's true. Uh, but mainly his diaries, uh, which cover the period from 1577 to 1607, so about from his age of 50 until he died, those were a big source of his, uh, I guess, life history. And this also coincides with the period of time where he was up to his most fantastic endeavors. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind. Uh, his early years were documented in his own autobiographical account, which was written in 1594. And what he was trying to do is explain his past to the crown, basically to queen Elizabeth, uh, because he was trying to secure a Royal position or an appointment that would secure him a regular income. Uh, and another source is the books that were recovered from his stolen collection. So we're going to talk probably a lot throughout the course of these episodes about he had this infamously huge library. Oh, yeah. And it was ransacked at one point. And some of those books have been recovered. Uh, and he wrote extensive annotations in their margins. So some... Uh, D scholars, I guess, go and find these copies and read those annotations to try to learn more about him. Apparently, much of that library now resides with the Royal College of Physicians, I think, in England. Yeah, so it's it's kind of difficult to tell truth from fiction in some of these cases. And Robert and I did our best. Uh, when we read something that sounded really strange to corroborate it with multiple sources. And we we did find that. But then again, like those sources were all mainly coming from Dee's own writings. That's right. There, there are, of course, a number of wonderful books out there on
0: Dee and his work. Uh, some books with, with with different focuses than others. Uh, one book that I kept looking at was the the one by Benjamin Woolley. Oh, yeah. The Queen's Conjure, Uh excellent book very readable i recommend that to to anybody uh but yeah this is a guy that is really, in many ways, a near unbelievable character. Truly stranger than fiction. Like, if, if Alan Moore wrote him into a story, you'd chalk it up to, oh, well, that's just Alan Moore's wondrous imagination and use of fictional and historic and pop culture hybridization. The same if he had appeared in an Umberto Eco book. Yeah. You might be tempted to think, oh, well, this is a, a fantastic creation, this Dr. D. But, but no, he, this was a, a real, real man. He, he lived, he wrote, and, and I'm not sure There has been anyone quite like him since. We we see parallels in some of the figures that we've covered on the show and will and and are planning to cover, such as John C. Lilly or Jack Parsons. Right, but
1: Dee kind of stands alone. Yeah, and it's funny that you mention Alan Moore because one of the sources that I went to was a, a history channel special that aired in 2002 and it was narrated by Brian Cox oh, and awesome. it's all about John D's life. And Alan Moore is one of the go-to experts that they oh, wow. summon, uh, you know, they cut to him every once in a while and you hear that Alan Moore voice. <laughs> He's He really knows his stuff about Dee, Um I imagine because, Alan Moore is really into sort of like the history of English magic and stuff like that outside mm-hmm. of his own fiction. But, um, yeah, he, the, first, first of all, I recommend like, if you're really into John D go check out this, this video, I watched it on YouTube and, uh, some of it's hilarious and, uh, some of it's really, uh, illuminating, but there's, um, they like do that thing that the history channel used to do where they like reenact scenes of oh, a yeah. person's life with actors and they have like, kind of makeshift, low-budget, like, sets and stuff. So, like, shadowy scenes of somebody dressed as John D. shuffling papers around yeah, sort of thing? Yeah, that thing, or, like, him looking into a crystal ball or him just walking <laughs> across a field, yeah. So I think probably the best way for us to to really first introduce you to John D. is let's just do a broad-stroke overview of his life. You know, we've given you sort of the, the two-sentence summary of who John D. was, but we'll start with his life... And then we'll really dive in deep into the magic stuff. Yeah, for, for with a guy like this,
0: I feel like this is the best approach. We'll give you the broad strokes, and then we'll go back in and discuss the areas that we we, uh, we have time to discuss in these episodes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I just want to say, too, like, keep in mind that there are uh, people whose like entire career is writing about this guy. So what we cover in like two, two and a half hours mm-hmm. of podcasts, may, you, you may be out there, you may know some stuff about D and be like, well, why didn't you, you cover that? There's only so much we could do here. So we really tried to condense it down to fit the show. All
0: right, well, here we go. Let's uh, kick it off with July 13th, 1527. John D is born in London,
1: England. Yeah, and my first question is, Who raises a guy like John Dee? Like, how does he how does he end up like this? So his father, Roland, was a merchant of fabrics and textiles, and he worked for King Henry VIII Uh, in 1553. His father was actually indicted and imprisoned in the Tower of London, presumably because he had ties to Protestant reformists and sympathizers of the late King Edward. So there's a lot of this is a, a. a theme that goes on throughout Dee's life is the um political struggles back and forth between the Catholic and Protestant church. Yeah, that's
0: def- definitely going on in the background the whole time. Now, 1542, John Dee enters St. John's college at Cambridge.
1: Yeah. And so from what I read at the time, uh the curriculum for such a college included something called the trivium, which is, Grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And once you master those things, you get your what would be your, your bachelor's, basically. Uh, and then the quadrivium is what you study for your master's, and that's astronomy, geography, music, and mathematics. Now, okay, again, this is self-reported from his own uh, thing that he wrote to the queen mm-hmm. later in life. But Dee says that while he was there, he only slept four hours a night, so all he could do was study. So, on one hand, he was essentially
0: applying for a position in this. Yeah. But also, as, as, as we discussed more about John Dee, I, I, don't really doubt this for a second. He seems like the kind of guy who, who may have only slept four hours a night. Absolutely. So that he could constantly consume information. So, in 1545, he, re- he receives that bachelor's degree in arts and readership. 1547, he, uh, takes, uh, his first scientific learning excursion to the low countries of continental Europe. And this becomes important later on because he spends increasingly, increasing amount of times there on various, uh, excursions. 1548, he gets his master's degree from Cambridge studying uh, mathematics and navigation. And then 1548 to 1551, his second learning excursion to the Low Countries. And uh, in particular, on this uh, trip, he studied under uh, mathematician cartographers Pedro Nunes, uh, Gima Frisius, Abraham Ortelius, and Gerardus
1: Mercator, as well as through his own studies in Paris and elsewhere. Yeah, and these, the second set of travels, these benefited england what he would do is he'd share his findings from these travels with queen elizabeth's associates so for here's an example in 1562 he discovered the works of trithemius and we're going to talk about this later he introduced the court and subsequently elizabeth to the study of modern cryptography through this ultimately changing uh i guess war games right with with the way that they used cryptography yeah,
0: yeah, we'll we'll definitely get into that in this into the second episode, but this was a time when when coded messages were uh, were really important. This was a matter of life and life and death. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, at this time he is he's he seems to have his sights set on official on an official position with the crown. Mm. And in doing so, he turned down a mathematical uh professorship at the University of Paris, and he turned down a similar position at the University of Oxford that was in 51 and 54. Okay. And then he returned to England. He went to court. And there he offered mathematical science instruction to courtiers, to navigators, just uh, generally trying to make himself useful uh, to the court. Right. He served as a consultant and
1: an astrologer to, among others, Queen Mary I. Yeah. So before he worked for Mary's court, he had a patron who was the Duke of Northumberland. And this guy tried to place his own daughter-in-law on the throne before Mary was placed there. He was charged with treason and executed. And this is one of the first of many times in Dee's life where he had less influence because he had sort of like followed the wrong person. Uh, And he has these periods of like waxing and waning influence over the English monarchy.
0: Yeah, getting involved in the the machinations of uh, of the court here, um who's in and who's out, uh which which star is
1: rising, which one's falling. So then in 1555, this is when he's jailed on the charge of being a conjurer. He was soon released thereafter, but let let's pause for a second and try to figure this out. So the thinking here is that Queen Mary's examiners were the ones who jailed him, possibly with charges of conspiring with her sister, Elizabeth, who was a rival at the time. And he was allegedly casting horoscopes for Queen Mary and her family without their permission. And because the predictions were bad for Mary, it was considered to be practicing witchcraft against the crown. The story goes like this, that while Elizabeth was under house arrest, she asked Dee to perform her and Mary's horoscope. And so he did, and it predicted that Elizabeth would have a long reign and that Mary would die, which... You know, kind (laughs) of happened. And and this is what landed him in jail. Now, after this, after he gets out of jail, he's placed under the charge of Edmund Bonner, who is the Bishop of London. And in one of Dee's writings, he actually refers to Bonner as his, quote, singular friend and there's some dispute about like is, are they actually friends or is this like his sarcastic term for this guy who's like kind of his jailer mm-hmm. um but after this point all of D's written works included sections defending his reputation from slander so he was well aware that his mixture of astrology and magic and conjuring with science and mathematics and statesmanship was under scrutiny and not for the last time. So, in fifteen fifty eight, he published an
0: afrotistic introduction, which presented his uh, his own views on natural philosophy, philosophy, and astrology. And uh, then, fifteen fifty eight, the same year, this is also when
1: the rule of Queen Elizabeth I begins. Yeah, and so the rumor here again, this is from D zone writings, is that uh, when Elizabeth took power, she asked Dee to choose her coronation date based on astrology. Now, who knows? I mean, yes, there's evidence that uh, he was jailed performing horoscopes for her previously, so why wouldn't she? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, he's the one claiming this stuff. And we know that later on in life, he's just constantly trying to gain favor with the court by sort of—he's he's bolstering his resume. Yeah. So uh yeah he becomes the scientific and medical advisor to the queen
0: and uh in the mid 1560s he establishes himself at Mortlake near London where he builds a a laboratory the largest private library in England more than uh, 4000 books and manuscripts and he uh you know, we'll, we'll describe some more of the, the settings here, but it, it sounds like a, a fabulous place. Yeah. And he would, he would invite other scholars to come in and, and use his books if they needed to look something up. And, of course, he was constantly in communication with other people. Like I was, I was reading uh, just yesterday about how he had these correspondence, a uh, uh, series of correspondence with, uh,
1: with Kiko Brahi. The, oh, uh, really? Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the famed, uh, yeah. astronomer. Yeah, famously, uh, lost his nose yes. in a sword fight. Yeah, another f- nose fabulous the of character of the time. Period. Yeah, we should totally do a, a Tycho Brahe episode. Um, yeah, so the other thing about this to note, just for context about the library, we say 4,000 books and some of you are like, yeah, I got 4,000 books in my house, right? Well, here's context. He had 2,670 manuscripts in that collection. Cambridge University at the time only had 451 manuscripts and Oxford University only had 379. So this was considered a massive library at the time. Like if you're thinking about this, like uh going back to the, the grimoire episode that you and I did a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, right? Like like these are not just like pulp books. They're not like soft covers, right. right? Like, some of these are written on parchment, or they're palimpsests, right? So, I mean, he's got, like, a serious collection here, and the books are unique, too. Yeah, in many cases, these would be books where you're wanting to read them. You might ask around and you would find out, oh, well, Dr. D has a copy of that. Yeah. Uh, you should go ask him. Maybe you'll get to look at it. Here's another interesting thing I wanted to point out as well. There's no evidence that he ever uh, earned a doctoral degree, but yeah. he was always referred to as Dr. D.
0: Hmm.
1: Kind of interesting. <laughs> now, uh, in uh, 1564, he
0: published The Hieroglyphic Monad in which he offered a single mathematical magical symbol as the key to unlocking uh, the y- the unity of nature.
1: Yeah, and this, I mean, I guess we'll maybe like post this on the landing page or something. We, mm-hmm. we actually shared, or you shared it on Facebook yesterday, kind of teasing the audience, hey, this is what we're working on. One person got it and they referred to him as the D. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but it it kind of looks like how do you pronounce that that German industrial band, Einstradens? Einst, that, Einstradens into Newbotten? Yeah. yeah, it
0: does. In fact, I had to to look up uh, Newbotten's logo just to make sure yeah. that, that they weren't too similar because I'm like, I never thought about this before. But, yeah. uh, you know, they're, they're two distinct symbols, but they are reminiscent of one another. Yeah, very much so. For some reason I also find that it looks like it kind of looks like it could be a character
1: from a SpongeBob cartoon, I don't know. It does have like a anthropologic quality to it of like a head with arms and legs and then like devil's horns.
0: Yeah, or it makes me think of the uh the aliens from Slaughterhouse 5 for some reason. Uh the ones who was like an eye on a hand. Huh. Okay. Being, uh I can't remember the name of them, but uh at any rate this was his uh Wait, There's his aliens idea.
1: in Slaughterhouse 5. Yeah, there's a there's a an alien zoo for humans. I forgot all about that. But yeah, I okay. <laughs> I just think about the horrors of Traf- World Traf- War Two. <laughs> I want
0: to say. So, uh, in 1570. He uh, created the first English translation of Euclid's Elements uh, and uh, added an influential preface that offered a powerful manifesto on, quote, the dignity and usefulness of the mathematical sciences. And he seems to, to certainly have highly regarded mathematics as the key to understanding the natural world, but also believed in the value of the occult to unlock the deeper mysteries of the universe. And again, his ideas of the occult and mathematics are kind of intertwined.
1: This is definitely going to be a theme that we return to over and over again in these episodes. Mathematics is like the through line for him. Yeah. Uh, whether he, or not he's trying to talk to angels or if he's just trying to plot out maps for people to discover uh, the Northwest Passage.
0: Yeah, I feel like his mind was inherently mathematic. If you, If he had lived in our age, I feel like he would undoubtedly be... A hacker, right, or, right. or, or a, a high-level programmer, in addition
1: to to whatever else he was into. That history special compared him to Stephen Hawking, huh. and I thought that was an interesting comparison. Although I'm still, I'm still trying to. I don't know if there's anybody alive that that really has these two things together. You're right, Lily and Jack Parsons are similar. But I'm really trying to rack my brain for somebody who's like a really influential intellectual, but also dabbles in the occult. Right. That's
0: still very much an outsider in his interest. And speaking of being an outsider in his interest, 1583 through 1589, in order to unlock the deeper mysteries of the universe, Dee sought communication with angelic entities Uh, with the aid of uh, convicted counterfeiter turned uh, occult sensation Edward Kelly, Who's a very complex character yeah. in and of himself. We'll get into Kelly. Yeah. Uh, so, so these two end up running around, uh, conducting seances in England, Poland, and Bohemia,
1: and have this rather volatile partnership. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's like something out of a reality TV show. Yeah. Like, Oh, you know how like every time on the show, on this show, when, when we do some of these historical characters are like, oh, this would make a great AMC, uh, oh, yeah. show. The, the Dr. D Edward Kelly show would be amazing because it'd be like them constantly like conniving behind one another's backs and then sitting in a room looking into a crystal ball talking to angels and then like trying to figure out how to sleep with one another's wives. Yeah. Th- uh,
0: this is another situation where, D described Kelly as a friend, Mm. and it makes me wonder. Like, it makes me question his uh, his criteria for friendship because (laughs) he he talks about Kelly, who was arguably a a scoundrel and may have been conning him half the time at least. And then there is Queen Elizabeth, who you know, there's no way they were really friends. They were, like I say, as much of a friendship as you could have with the Queen of England. Uh, that bishop I mentioned and then, earlier, yeah, and then his, uh, his, his, his the, the warden of his prison, essentially at <laughs> yeah. the time. So I don't know. I
1: don't know if D ever really got friendship exactly, but yeah. hey, it's difficult in life. So uh, Kelly and him, they, they, they end up going to uh, essentially Poland and then Bohemia, conducting their seances all along the way, and then they come back. Yeah, that kind of falls up. Well, well it does fall D apart. comes back. Yeah,
0: they're they're relationship falls apart d returns to england in 1589 to try and try and put things back together he finds his home vandalized his library's been ransacked uh and he's also come back to an england that is less tolerant of his ideas increasingly less
1: tolerant and then the bubonic plague strikes and kills pretty much everybody in his family including his wife and five of his eight children so he's Utterly devastated. He's lost his library. He's lost his family. He doesn't have as much influence as he used to. So, in fifteen ninety six, his friends raised
0: money for him and interceded on his behalf with Queen Elizabeth. You know, just trying to land him in the the right place, right? So, she appoints him warden of Manchester College, and and this is from what I was reading. This is not an ideal place for him to wind up he's not uh you know he's he's constantly being undermined minded by other individuals there he he doesn't
1: have a lot of clout but it's like a good way to shuffle him off and like get him so he doesn't really have any influence over her court but he still feels you know he's cashing a paycheck
0: Then in 1603 uh queen elizabeth dies and uh james the first
1: takes to the throne and provides no support for d yeah so so for some context james the first was fervently against witchcraft, and he personally oversaw the torture of women who were accused of it. So he's not going to be particularly fond of John Dee and his angel scrying and astrology and alchemy. And then in December of 1608, Dee dies following uh, what
0: is described as years of poverty and isolation. However, so even for someone like Dee, it doesn't seem like poverty and isolation for him is, you know, quite the, the bottom of the barrel, poverty and isolation. Like, this, right. a lot of this is him being forced to sell off a lot of his prized possessions, that sort of thing. Maybe not the you know, the proudest period of his, of his life, but I didn't read anything to indicate that he was on the streets.
1: Yeah, so I mean, like, to get an indication, I was looking at pictures of um, what Mortlake looked like, his estate, and where it is now today, I think there's, like, uh, apartments right along the River Thames. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, you know, by all accounts, like, It was a huge house. Uh, He still had a lot of things. I don't think he was going hungry. I just don't think he was wealthy or had influence over the aristocracy the way he might have in the past. Um, Now, here's – this is really interesting. There's also evidence that he didn't actually die in December. Uh, and that he it, three months later was when he died in the following March in the London home of an acquaintance. So get ready out there, conspiracy theorists, because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are like, oh, John Dee found the philosopher's stone and is immortal and uh, is still with us today or something. Or the, these are fake accounts of his death, you know, uh, stuff like that. Well, the, the amazing thing about Dee is it's all, everything is already unbelievable enough.
0: Without even going into the conjecture of conspiracy theory, Uh, though, though there's a lot of fun to be had there as well. Um, Hey, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to uh, break into the spirituality of John Dee and ultimately into his occult practices. Hi, I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we're the co-hosts of Stuff You Missed in History Class.
1: We are a history podcast that tries to look at the things that maybe were overlooked in your history classes, maybe not covered in as much detail, or frankly, maybe covered in a way that
0: was not accurate. New episodes come out every Monday and Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere else that podcasts can be listened to. So it's important to remember that that D was born into an age and a place of Christendom. So, yes, everyone still murdered every, each other every year over their beliefs, and much of this entailed conflicts of, of uh, Protestants versus Catholics, the church versus heretics, and so forth. Uh, you really had to go quite rustic or quite esoteric in order to find alternative modes of belief that you could, you know, actually embrace. Yeah. All of the stranger ideas that Dee entangled himself with, astrology, angelic communication, magic, etc., these were all still connected to the culture of Christianity and to the essentially like the, the, the mythos of Christianity, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Dee was a devoted Christian his entire life, though certainly in a challenging time for the faithful which i guess it always is uh, and he was uh, he was not afraid to explore ideas and writings that others deemed dangerous to the faithful and it's also worth noting here that like a guy like Dee, who you know you can say was a a weird guy he had a he had a unique brain he had a unique view of everything uh, this ability to see magic and mathematics and everything else wrapped up into one so he could you know cling to a Christian faith, but his view of the Christian faith uh, was, was, and it was inherently different, I think from, from most peoples at the time.
1: Yeah, I think it was different, but at the same, the way I like to think of it is that he was into Christian mysticism, right? In that like he, he, he was a believer. He was trying to do the right thing. I think he was trying to ride the line between Protestantism and, and, and Catholicism so mm-hmm. that he basically could stay alive. Um, but that the, the stuff that he believed was the the mystical parts that were sort of like – some people were like, oh, yeah, that 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 exists. I don't know if I subscribe to that or not. And others were like, oh, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. Oh, talking to angels? Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking into crystal balls? Yeah, definitely. Astrology? Okay. You know, um, in the same way – I don't know. I'm like trying to think of a modern-day example. like I guess Kabbalah keeps coming to mind, and that's not even modern-day. I mean, Kabbalah was uh, right. around at the time D was alive. Um, so maybe that's an example. Now, you mentioned astrology. Uh, Dee kept a private diary where he mentioned a lot of
0: uh, what we know comes from his own writings. Uh, but this was a time before diaries and calendars of the modern sort. So D would would plot out the positions of the planets in reference to the recorded details of his daily life, likely in order to identify links between his personal life and celestial events. So it's a, an uncharacteristically intimate account of Elizabethan life. Uh much of it lost, however, but still there's a, there's a, a lot there. It's kind of been written in shorthand yeah. and it'll include things like, you know, his personal finances, huh. jobs he picked up. Um I, I actually have an example here f- uh, from his diary. Okay. October 7th, my anger with Edward My Coke because of his disorder. October 8th, Mr. Richard Western lent me 10 pounds for a year. October 9th. I dined with Sir Walter Raleigh at Durham House, October 11th, to Edwards, part of Wagges. Mr. Banks lent me upon a loan till after Christmas, five pounds. Mr. Emery sent me three pounds by my
1: servant, Richard Walkadine. So it's that sort of thing. So he's just like kind of acquiring like a couple pounds here, a couple pounds there for his services, presumably. I mean, I, I doubt that they're just giving it to him as donations. Maybe he read their horoscope or maybe he, I don't know, wrote a map for them or something. Yeah, it's
0: kind of like an it's kind of like he kept uh, an astrologically aligned chart of his finances to yeah. a certain extent in these and he was doing a lot of freelance activities like to to sub- cuz he's a guy who spent a lot of money on books yeah. and uh and his uh his his interests and to support that he would do freelance horoscopes yeah freelance uh, dream interpretations and i was even reading uh, that he occasionally did some freelance forensics work oh, there was a, really? an account of him of apparently of, of him weighing in on a robbery oh. uh, and d- deciding who was uh, who was guilty it's kind of it's kind of faint going from his notes but that seems to be yeah. the case huh so d believed in a natural magic when we start talking about his use of magic and his belief in magic and this magic that's tied up with mathematics he saw magic as the human ability to tap into the forces that god unleashed when he created the cosmos and that set things in motion. So that's important. Not, not the power of God, but the powers that God unleashed.
1: Yeah, he saw natural magic as actually a legitimate study of science. And in his own books, he listed the magical arts as being a derivative subject of mathematics. Keep in mind that his thought process wasn't unusual at the time. Many thought science and magic were different facets to just understand understand what was going on in the mind of God. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, to to look at his thoughts
0: on magic, that he's essentially talking about technology here, uh, granted, with a lot of uh, occult bells and whistles. But he's yeah. talking about figuring out how these
1: forces in the universe work and figuring out how to manipulate those forces. <laughs> You know, it's a really interesting uh, connection to to the magic as technology thing for him. When he was in college, he created special effects for a production of Aristophanes Pax, and he was branded a sorcerer because of it. He apparently built a giant mechanical flying scarab. I don't know if it actually flew, but it was... It was like an automaton, and uh, it was apparently so realistic to the people who were watching it that they they were like, oh, he must have used magic to do this. But it was just engineering. Yeah, this was a a
0: crazy uh, moment in his life, and his life was just full of these. Where He just uh, did FX for a play, and the FX were so good. If people said, well, that was pretty amazing, this guy is probably somehow um, involved with demonic forces. Yeah. It's the only excuse. And and I was reading, like, people aren't really sure exactly how he pulled it off, too, because right. he would have had limited uh, resources with the stage at that time. So it's not, we're not even exactly sure what he did, how he achieved the effect, but uh, but he, he certainly w- was, I, th- I think it was pretty clear that he was using practical effects and not not actual sorcery here.
1: Um, Another thing that we should note here, too, especially before we really get into his angelic communication, is that the idea of an angelic language, which is referred to as a Nokian, is said to be the mathematics behind how creation was was made. So, you know, keep in mind, like, as we're going through all of this, he's thinking of his interrogations of angels as being... Scientific in nature and that he's trying to understand how the world
0: works. Yes. Yeah. So in in a sense, the Enochian language and mathematics are like one is the secular and one is the spiritual version of the same idea that there's this underlying word. There's this underlying uh, system that we can understand,
1: tap into, and therefore gain insight into how the universe works. Yeah. All right. So here's the juicy stuff, the angelic communication. So he really wanted to communicate with angels to help him understand natural knowledge. And the way he did this was by attempting to conjure spirits using a crystal. And this, this was common at the time.
0: Yeah. And it's, I want to add real quick for anyone out there who's not familiar with, with Christianity and, and angels and all that. Cause I found myself trying to explain angels to my son the other day. Cause he was asking him about it, about what angels were. Uh, and I didn't tell him all of this but in the in in the christian tradition the angels are of course the the servants of god they are powerful and at times very terrifying, uh, beings. Yeah. That do everything from deliver messages to, you know, destroy whole cities and turn people into pillars of salt, that sort of thing.
1: I, uh, I wrote a video that we shot here, uh, about different types of angels throughout Christian mysticism. Mm-hmm. And there's like, you know, there's the thrones and the dominions and they're yeah. all, there's like nine different categories, I think. Cherubs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, they're, utterly alien and terrifying when you think about them from the context of D's time. Yeah. Um, These so- were not the fluffy uh, <laughs> cherubs, of the, the, the modern version of the, the cherubs, sort of renaissance cherub that you see on a coffee mug or something. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. Some of them were like wheels of burning fire with eyeballs in the middle and stuff. I mean, like, truly horrifying kind of imagery.
0: Yeah. Uh Fantasy uh, illustrator uh, Michael Kaluta. I'm oh, yeah. Familiar. Yeah. Mike Kaluta's great. Yeah. He did a number of angel illustrations for a short-lived card game called Heresy Kingdom Come back in the 90s. Oh, yeah. And he did a fabulous job invoking this, I feel like, the, this this potent intimidating alien but also kind of, but also holy feeling vision of uh, of an angelic entity. So I always yeah. connected those when I try and and think
1: about these uh, these angelic beings as we encounter in, uh, in in Christian tradition. And I imagine as D was performing these séances that we're about to talk about although he didn't really see anything himself, that's what he was imagining was in the room with him. So why didn't he see anything himself? Well, D himself Couldn't see spirits, so he relied on psychics. Enter Edward Kelly. So Edward Kelly uh, is this 26-year-old cunning man. You may have heard us talk about cunning men before on uh, the show. I was referring to them in an episode of um, when we were talking about Warren Ellis's book, Cunning Plans, Mm because – Cunning men are sort of. I guess the best way to explain it real quickly is just like an English shamanic tradition, maybe. Okay. Um, and but he was also you know a criminal and a counterfeiter. He had his ears cropped from his head before he met D. So think about that when you're thinking about this guy. Yeah, at uh, least one of them. And he apparently always wore um, a cowl to cover up the discarge. Yeah. And that was for counterfeiting coins. Um okay so D and Kelly they meet for the first time in 1582. Yeah and this this
0: whole episode has there's a lot more detail but I'll just try to go through the basics here so kelly was calling himself uh talbot at the time which was one of his uh his aliases and uh and it's i think it's certainly fitting that even his introduction to d was was clothed in deception <laughs> so he was apparently he was apparently a pretty charismatic character as we've talked about he had difficulty kneeling he walked with a staff and he's a young dude but uh but he also had uh, had at least one ear cropped uh, for, uh, for, for engaging in counterfeiting. He also may have served as a crooked notary in London at one port, uh, at one point, uh, reputed to have dabbled in necromancy. He arrived at Dee's to lie low after allegedly cheating a lady out of some jewels, but he seems to have, to have talked his way out of, uh, trouble with, uh, with the individuals who were pursuing him over this. <laughs> and in his private, uh, diary, Dee noted that, quote, I have confirmed that Talbot was was a fraud. Okay. And Kelly himself came along later at some point and scribbled in Dee's diary a horrible and slanderous lie. <laughs> which, which I think says a lot about this friendship. Yeah. Um, it, it, so that, yeah, their friendship seems to have been rather complicated. Uh, Dee seems to have uh, considered him a friend and certainly would go on to spend a great deal of time with him in the years they had. Uh, but it's also a quarrelsome, intense relationship. And to what extent was Kelly using Dee? To what extent did D see himself as using Kelly? If he see saw he saw perhaps Kelly as a as an in, a way of uh, of, of better communicating with this spiritual realm. Yeah. Um so it's 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 a complex
1: relationship again. So Dee's diary recounts a series of conversations with angels that Kelly facilitated. And the hope was that Dee would get these angels to help him recover the original language spoken by Adam before the confusion at Babel, which, you know, we referred to earlier as Enochian. Um, and the, the way that we know about this was these spirit diaries were actually dug up in a field ten years after his death. And in them is a completely new language with its own grammar and syntax. Uh, the angels supposedly provided him with the Enochian language, which they said was the Ur language of humanity. And I want to I want to add one thing in here, which is that, you know, as I was reading through all this stuff, I, I was utterly convinced that Edward Kelly was scamming D the whole time mm-hmm. and that he was just making up the names of these angel characters and performing their whatever their traits were and just making the whole thing up. But Alan Moore in that history channel thing points out. Sure. That's probably true. But how on earth did somebody like Edward Kelly invent an entire language on the fly? He wasn't a linguistics expert. He would have had to have been a genius to just create a fake language out of nowhere. And people have since studied Enochian and have looked over these notes and it's, you know, it, it functions as a language. So, uh, the you know the big question is like, well, okay, if he wasn't talking to angels, how did Edward Kelly come up with this stuff? Yeah,
0: because you're left with a few possibilities here. As I understand, it's either a he actually did come up with this this material, yeah. and there's some questions about about whether or not he had the background to do it. Um, the other possibility, and this seems. This seems to to square with what we know about his uh, his character. Perhaps he stole it from, from yeah. somewhere. He uh, he copied it from someone else, and we're just uh there's a, there's a certain amount of
1: ambiguity about where that might have been, uh, where it might have been stolen from. Right. Yeah. And that we don't know. Now, Kelly, as he was looking through his crystal ball or his scrying mirror, said that the angels were angry with humanity for being captivated by anything but God, and and they described two D the order of the cosmos, instructions for rituals, and predictions of the future, as well as this Enochian language. Their major pronouncement was that, that they wanted the world to be united under a single religion that united all the denominations of Christianity along with Judaism and Islam. So essentially, you know, 400 years ago, these Angels quote unquote were advocating for globalism. Huh. So it's kind of fascinating when you yeah. think about it especially like if we consider like Kelly was probably making the whole thing up. He was like advocating for this very like futuristic idea of uh socioeconomics. Yeah. And, you know it's it's fascinating.
0: Yeah, I can easily imagine a scenario where uh where one of these uh, angels is saying, "Look, Christianity, Juda- Judaism, Islam, these uh, these factions are not going to work everything out in the foreseeable future. Better that we just combine it all into one and
1: right. then everybody can be unified. Now, for Kelly's part, as you know, as he's relaying these messages from the angels, he's also saying to D, these angels are actually demons. And I'm terrified of them because they know that I previously had participated in some demonic grimoire magic. Um And D was like, nope we've got to continue. I absolutely insist that we continue. I mean, Kelly was basically like a prisoner in d 's home, <laughs> um and the two of them even asked the angels for money at one point, and Kelly reportedly asked them for a loan, oh, like wow, like they were going to make money appear out of nowhere and then he would give it back to them or something i don't know so and and uh, keep in mind too it, it's very likely that this is all just a fiction in his own head that he's enacting in front of d for d 's purposes.
0: Right. But then also, I mean, when when you're when you're dealing with this kind of magic and and if you're considering this uh, some sort of demonic entity that you're uh, you're communicating with, uh, I mean, that has some very real life uh, ramifications. Yeah.
1: Not an age where you can just walk around on the street and talk about your conversations with demons. So while they're in the middle of all this and they're they're working out of Mortlake, they. Uh, come into contact with a third party. And this guy's name, he's a Polish prince, and his name is Lord Albert Lasky. Uh, and he had visited England and claimed that he was there simply to meet the queen and enjoy the scenery uh he had previously been suspected of trying to steal the Polish throne everybody's trying to steal a throne in this story <laughs> yeah i think that's an important thing to to keep in mind about the about
0: the european setting at the time is this was not an age of stability this was right. an age of of tense politics an age of war an age of uh of, of rather robust uh espionage um Coded messages going back and forth yeah. and and people people dying when these codes
1: are unraveled. So Lasky's involvement with these guys is is weird and debated. And Robert and I had to look to a couple different books to try to figure out how much we could, you know, uh, resolve as to what was his involvement in the situation. Uh, apparently he started showing up at the seances and this was uh considered problematic, I think, by Kelly because there was a third party involved there, probably because Kelly was afraid that he would get caught. Yeah. Um, but also the idea was basically like, why would you why would you sit on all these seances? Some demon could come out and destroy you. You know, it's like this horribly scary thing. There's also, you know, some question about whether or not he was an informer, either for Poland or possibly the Holy Roman Empire. Um, either way, it seems that he was the one who eventually leads them to Poland. Um, and the the story goes is that he was duped by Edward Kelly and the whole scrying thing. And he believed that great things were meant for Kelly. Uh, and so he convinces them to return to Poland with him in 1583. And they pack up their whole family uh and all their stuff with them except for the library this huge library uh now there's a lot of stuff that goes on in poland and we'll get into that but when they get there their experiments whatever they were doing i think it was alchemical and in, in, in nature were so costly that lasky lost his fortune and lands trying to fund the two of their work and when it became apparent that he couldn't afford this any longer uh, the spirits began to express their doubts through Kelly that Lasky may not have been the right man to bring about the changes in Europe that they desired. Yeah, now this is a period of time where,
0: uh, where Kelly just increasingly seems like he's just a con artist. Yeah. You know, making promises of gold, like generating gold through alchemy for his benefactors, and then here when things don't go uh, as planned, when he can't deliver, he casts doubt on his
1: benefactors. Yeah. And in and, and the way that Lasky basically gets rid of them, as he says, you know, I'm going to pay for you guys to go to Prague and I'll provide you with a letter of introduction to Emperor Rudolf II. Now, <laughs> You're his problem now. Now, we I think we mentioned this in the, in the, you know, the the short bio at the beginning. But apparently, you know, Rudolf threw D out of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, some say it was because he suspected that Dee was an English spy. Now, considering, you know, what we know about Dee and cryptography and statecraft, maybe he was. And we're going to talk about that more in the next episode. But there's also evidence that the angels told Dee that he needed to go to Rudolph and tell Rudolph that he was possessed by demons. Now, the Catholic Church were aware of this, and they considered Dee and Kelly a threat. Think about this though like in context of the time. D is so much of a believer in what Kelly is telling him that he's willing to go to the emperor and be like, "Sorry, uh you're possessed by demons yeah. and you, you know, you need to really turn your life around. Why don't you listen to us?" I mean, that's an executable offense. Mm-hmm. Luckily, he just was exiled. Now it seems that Dee was very sincere about this, while it also seems that Kelly was probably duping him. And their relationship lasted for 10 years. Here's where it all falls apart. So the angels told them to swap wives. So, again, it sounds like a reality TV show to me. Yeah. Uh, there's this angel that they keep communicating with named Medimi, and she's described as being kind of this, um, I don't know, like coquettish little girl that... Uh, Kelly would describe her as, like, running around the room and stuff. And she told them, you guys have to share all things in common. And they interpreted that as meaning their wives. Now, Jane D was uh D's wife at the time. She was his third wife. He'd had two previous wives who died, I believe, of illness. Uh, she was much younger than him. I think she was in, like, her mid-20s, and he was in his 50s. And she was reportedly very upset about this because, by all accounts, Edward Kelly was not uh, a, a, an attractive man or, you know, a trustworthy man. Right. So the last thing she wanted to do was have to sleep with this guy. But Dee thought it was a valid command from the angels Uh, especially because then even D was like, Hey, I need some, uh, some confirmation on this. So Kelly's like, okay, let me look into the, uh, scrying ball over here. And he summons the angel Uriel, uh, who's like a pretty high up in the hierarchy of angels and Uriel confirms it. He's like, yep, you guys have to share everything. So two days after they drew up their wife swapping contract, then the Scarlet Woman Babylon appeared to Kelly. Now, uh, some of you may recognize this from like a uh, crowleyan magic. Uh, she's also known as the Horror of Babylon in Revelations. This was so scary to them, or at least to Dee, that they parted ways and their sessions ceased forever. They, they, they their relationship ended. Kelly ended up wandering around Bohemia, and he then convinces Rudolph II. Hey, uh, I, I know alchemy. I, I might be able to use a philosopher's stone to make you gold. <laughs> yeah, and this would uh, this would seem to be the uh, just to spell
0: the the final chapter of, of Edward Kelly's life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at, at this point in the story, I really <sighs> D and Kelly certainly kind of created, seem to have created like codependently their their own little crazy uh, trip here, and uh, and I, I feel. Feel bad for the the women that were were sucked along the way, yeah. Uh, but it, things finally come apart; they come to pieces. I feel like Dee is the the character who certainly comes out of, off as more honest, more devout. Yeah. Whereas uh, is you know Kelly is is probably just con a con artist who's also uh, buying into certain amounts of his own con. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't think one should take solace from such things, but it seems that Kelly uh, died in 1597 or 1598 in a Czech castle where he was imprisoned for failing to produce that alchemist gold. And he apparently died from injuries sustained while trying to escape. According to Benjamin Woolley's book, um, Kelly tried to climb from the window on a rope of knotted sheets, you know, just like in the movies. Yeah. Uh, and then fell, breaking both legs. And uh, this was after drugging the guards with opium smuggled in by his <laughs> wife, uh, Joanna. This guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Dee later writes that he'd heard that Kelly, quote, had been slain. And there were rumors that uh, that Kelly, even at the time, had faked his own death and was continuing to practice alchemy in southern Germany or possibly Russia. Yeah. But uh, and, then, you know, he, and then the
1: conspiracy theorists would say, like, he went on to live for hundreds of years and he was Rasputin. Right. But I <laughs> I have
0: a feeling and it seems like the more uh, historians tend to agree that, yeah, he probably fell out of that, fell from that uh, that that rope of sheets and broke both
1: his legs and then subsequently died of the injuries. Yeah, that sounds right to me. So uh, why don't we take one more break and then let's talk about the sort of spiritual artifacts uh, that come up after D's death. I'm Kristen Conger. And I'm
0: Caroline Irvin.
1: And together, we host a podcast, Stuff Mom Never Told You, that gets down to the business of being women from every imaginable angle. New episodes come out Mondays and Wednesdays on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: All right, we're back. So Dee was, for, for whatever else Dee was, and certainly he was a lot of things, Again, all kind of woven together. He was certainly a collector of occult, uh, paraphernalia and occult books. Uh, and we still have some of these spiritual artifacts. The, the British Museum retains ownership of several items that he and, and Kelly utilized in seances and other rites. So we've already talked about Dee's extensive library. And, uh, you can think of it in these terms. This is the way that Dee divided it. You had the Externa Bibliotheca which is the external library. You had several rooms or appendices which led off from the library. And uh, in these appendices, uh, visitors uh, to to his uh, home described celestial and terrestrial globes, uh, a five-foot quadrant, a 10-foot cross staff, a sea compass, an accurate, quote, watch clock, uh, portable timepiece, various marvels from his travels, and these rooms also housed his library, his laboratories, uh, where uh, multiple stills bubbled. <laughs> you know, it sounds like a complete, uh, you know, set from uh, like a Hammer horror film.
1: Yeah, there's no. Uh, it's not a coincidence that our modern day idea of what a wizard or a sorcerer looks like is D. Yeah, mean, yeah, that idea of him in the robe with a big, long, white beard. Yeah, we have uh, some
0: various illustra- we have various illustrations of, of what he looked like. And I, I think there's probably one is the cover image for this episode. So you already have an idea in your head. But, yeah, he he looked like our modern conception of a wizard. Yeah. Uh, so he had uh, he had all these these rooms filling off uh, from the library, from the external library. Uh, but then there was also the interna biblioteca, the private study, an adjoining chapel, And there was also an adjoining chapel uh, where, to quote Woolley, he presumably shelved the Bibles and devotional texts. So conspicuously lacking from the catalogs of the externa biblioteca. Uh, but the uh, interna uh, bibliotheca, the internal library. This is where he stored his magical equipment, his confidential writings, and certain books of frequent use. Huh. And uh, by the way, if this, if this sounds like a rather costly man cave, <laughs> you're right. Uh, it uh, steadily became unsustainable on his mere 80 pound annual stipend. Uh, from his um, uh, rectory at Long-Leddenham. Uh, and so he provided, this is why he provided a, n- a number of freelance services, including tutoring, astrological readings, dream interpretation, medical co- uh, consultations, and uh, forensic advice, which I already mentioned. So uh, um, among the various items in his possession, uh, again, a few of them uh, survive to this day. And one of them is uh, Dr. D's magical mirror, also known as Dr. D's magical
1: speculum. Oh, that uh, this I, I don't know where we're going, but this already <laughs> sounds bad. Okay.
0: So uh, there's some wonderful images of this, and I'll try to include some on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. The, the black mirror here, this, uh, this magical mirror. It's probably not quite what you would imagine if someone asked you to envision an Elizabethan sorcerer's mirror. It looks rather like part of an IKEA coffee table, actually. Okay. It's an obsidian, quote, smoking mirror. So named because a scryer gazing into the mirror would see clouds of smoke which would part, uh, to reveal a vision. Uh, And and this is definitely an item that Edward Kelly made use of as well. Okay. apparently it's of Aztec origin brought to Europe after the conquest of Mexico, acquired by Dr. D for use in his magical pursuits uh, in the late 16th century, uh, perhaps created, though, up to two centuries earlier. In Mexico, and this is in the British Museum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, obsidian. There's a wood case covered in tooled leather uh, with label and a handwriting of one Horace Walpole uh, and a quotation from a Samuel Butler poem.
1: So, do you think this is where the idea for the title of the show Black Mirror came from?
0: I've I've never seen there I've never seen any connective tissue there but I couldn't help but think of it you know yeah. the scrying mirror I know that the, the black mirror uh that uh, on the TV show is uh, you know supposed to have to do with uh, like the 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 uh, the black uh, screens. screens of yeah. our personal devices but it, it does make me think too now about scrying mirrors and I wonder yeah I wonder to what extent uh, a smoking mirror uh is invoked in that right now this is not to be confused with the strange mirror uh, just as, as it was uh, sometimes called, it was given to D by one William Pickering, the, quote, great perspective glass. And this app- apparently stood in a corner of his study. And according to Woolley, anyone who lunged at the glass with a dagger found their reflection lunging back at them, quote, with like hand, sword or dagger creating an unsettling effect, uh, but one that Dee would use to explain how all strange effects could be explained by the mathematics of perspective. Okay. So this was not something that he apparently used in occult practices, and I guess, based on what we know about it, it would have been a non-reversing mirror of which there are a few different varieties. Mm -hmm. And uh, the queen herself uh, apparently once stood before this mirror. Okay. Now, he also had two crystal balls, uh, one of which... uh, a uh, good old uh, Edward Kelly or Talbot used to see Uriel. Mm. Uh, there is uh, the Seal of God or Sigillum Dei used to support other occult objects uh, such as the crystals. This is also in the British Museum, so this would have been kind of you know the table for their uh, the, yeah. their other objects. Uh, there, there are the crystals themselves, one of which is in the the British Museum. Uh, John Dee's crystal used for uh, clairvoyance and for curing disease. Metal and quartz. Uh, from around 1582. Uh, you can also see uh, images of this. Uh, so it's it's fascinating. We have some of the the magical artifacts of his life, of yeah. his time, still with us today.
1: He, yeah, it, I can't help but think about, again, like the research that we did about grimoires, in that, uh, that a lot of those were created, I think, earlier than Dee's time, but he's still relying on a lot of the I guess magical thinking would be the right way mm-hmm. to put it, um, that surrounded those texts and then applied them to objects in the way that we now understand as being just like part of fantasy genre yeah. of like, well, this is how a wizard works. They have a staff and a crystal and uh, a huge library, right? Uh, yeah. It's interesting that, you
0: know, certainly Merlin is the, 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 the perfect example of the, the, the English wizarding character. Yeah. And it's certainly a character that, uh, that had an influence on Dee. But then Dee himself becomes this, this influential icon of, of English wizardry. Uh, and, and it's almost certain that William Shakespeare modeled the character of Prospero in The Tempest on the character of Dee.
1: Yeah. Uh, th- th- and interesting, again, tying it back to the whole Alan Moore thing, in Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Prospero shows up as a character, ah. and it's heavily implied that he is John D. You know, uh, speaking of, of sort of modern
0: interpretations, I was looking around. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Rocky Horror uh, mastermind Richard O'Brien played Dr. Dee oh, yeah. in the 1978 film Jubilee, which is kind of like a time-traveling Elizabethan thing. Huh. Actor David Threlfall played both Prospero and Dr. John D. Uh, the later in the second Elizabeth movie. Okay. Yeah. I was going to
1: ask the golden that age. because there's been these Elizabeth movies and I thought they must have included D somehow.
0: Yeah. I have not seen the golden age, but he apparently he shows up in that for okay, sure. Okay. Okay.
1: As do some of these other characters, especially ones we'll
0: discuss in the next episode that, uh, that deals a little more closely with his,
1: you know, his real world pursuits. Mm. And then wait a minute. There's a note here about Terrence McKenna.
0: Yeah. Uh, so this, largely according to the Internet Movie Database, T- Terrence McKenna played D in the Alchemical Dream: Rebirth of the Great Work, and uh, the whole you can find the whole thing on YouTube. Uh, it seems like he just like McKenna just narrates it. Okay. I I didn't watch the whole thing, but I
1: didn't I didn't notice a scene in which he dresses up as D. But still, that's like a. Um... I don't know like modern day quote magician slash uh psychedelic psychonauts uh dream come true that yeah. kind of a thing
0: yeah, so it's interesting to see d s influence in uh in in modern society in entertainment there there are a whole list of uh of examples that we're not even going to get into where d shows up in various fictional works to varying degrees either as a as a, an
1: amazing side character or occasionally as a central character huh Well, okay. so I feel like we've covered as well as we can in the time available to us, the occult magical aspects of D. Now we're going to cut this episode and our next episode this week is going to be all about his contributions to science, to statecraft and cryptography. That's right.
0: So pick up with us again in the next episode, and we will dive into more uh, tantalizing details
1: about the life and work of Dr. John D. Now, in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, don't forget that we are available on social media at Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. Uh, and you can always visit us at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
0: And if you want to send us a, an email the old-fashioned way, you don't have to use any uh, fancy wizarding equipment. You don't need a a magic mirror or a scrying crystal. Just send it to BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other
1: topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. (laughs) I <laughs>